1: Hey everyone, it's Raghu, and I am back with another edition of Mind Rolling. I'm actually just back from India and um, doing my Yatra thing over there. Maybe on another podcast, I will share the trip I had, which was extraordinary, as India usually is. Uh, In this case, though, uh, this podcast... I actually asked our wonderful curator of our library, libraries actually, uh, Nathan, to put together some excerpts of podcasts that I've done before around uh, practice, because um, as I've said many, many, many times on these podcasts over these last few years, that uh, practice is essential in terms of us being able to navigate our daily lives and create a sense of balance and uh, more, shall we say, being present with the moment, each moment that we encounter. So I have talked to some incredible people, and I'm going to give you an idea of some of those people many of them you of course already know. And, uh, but before that, just want to talk about 1440.org, 1440 multiversity. They are our wonderful sponsors and they've been with us for quite some time. And I just wanted to suggest a couple of, you know, they have these workshops on the weekend. It's near Santa Cruz, beautiful, beautiful campus. And, uh, They have everything from Power Yoga Weekend with Brian Kest, who's an incredible yoga teacher. Uh, That's happening at the beginning of November. Uh, Then they have The Art of Total Rest with Uma Dinsmore Thule, practical tools designed to deepen your connection to an unlimited supply of lucid, brilliant ideas. Sounds fabulous. And then there's one called Abandonment to Healing. You know, uh, many of us have that within our karmic uh, uh, patterns. Uh, abandonment is certainly a fear uh, that, uh, as they say here, it can be at the root of emotional distress and self-sabotage. So, um, uh, there's a wonderful person named Susan Anderson that will guide uh, this particular uh, weekend workshop so go to dot uh, 1440.org and take a look for yourselves and see if there isn't something there that meets your needs because they have such a wide variety and uh, everything they do is completely in line with everything that uh, love server member foundation be here now network and Ramdas represents so we're Super happy to continue this wonderful relationship with 1440. Uh, something else to just mention to you is uh, the online course that our wonderful Rachel Fisher has designed. It's a meditation course from Ram Dass called Alchemy of the Heart. And uh, just go to Ramdas.org and you will see a banner at the top. Um, There's only a few more days to sign up through this weekend. Um, The weekend that this podcast is coming out. And uh, it's all free and take advantage of that. Some beautiful practice that Ramdas introduces over four weeks. So I wanted to mention that. Now, onward to... This particular podcast, and it has my some of my my own teachers and close friends uh that I have uh chatted with over the years and uh we've picked out some really important practices and they're practices that include like perspective. It's not just okay, here's a meditative practice. It's a way of seeing things in a shift. It's a way of shifting how we see things. I think that's a more uh, appropriate way of putting it. Um, so we've got Joseph Goldstein. We've got Trudy Goodman. We've got Locke Kelly, who's a, a mindfulness expert. We've got Roshi Joan Halifax. We've got Jack Cornfield, We've got Sharon Salzberg. So to me, it's the who's who of... Uh, mindfulness, meditation, and just plain old practical advice on how we can live a life in balance, which is one of my central themes on mind rolling. So I'm pretty, uh, stoked about this and, uh, I think it's a great offering. I, I think we have a couple of podcasts that, uh, We've chosen, Nathan has chosen various uh, excerpts that are really keyed into helping us day to day. So, uh, very happy about it. It's uh, essential, especially in these very difficult times that are going to get even more difficult next year, aren't they? Um, hopefully, we'll come out, uh, come into a place of more caring and a, a more kind place and uh a more compassionate and loving place uh i think we will but here's these are things that we can do to help us get into that place and once we do then as ramdas says over and over we just radiate that compassionate heart so uh enjoy this podcast uh, and certainly please do take advantage of it, and take advantage of that course. You just get in there. As I say, it's free. Just sign up, and uh, I think it will help. So between this podcast and that course, I think there's something there for everybody. So again, and this is mind-rolling on Be Here Now Network. Go to BeHereNowNetwork.com. We have a whole host of wonderful teachers and podcasters and thought leaders, and uh, we're happy to present this and share it with you. We'll see you next week on Mind Rolling. Um, We're back to reality a little bit, uh, (laughs) getting real. so uh again from from this uh, from Robert's book the essence of living with reality is to continually continually surrender to what is surrender's of course mm-hmm. that's like merit that's a bad, a bad right. term uh, yeah. you have already created your own personal universe with your karmas and now you must live in it everyone mm-hmm. who has sown the wind will eventually reap the whirlwind that's kind <laughs> of a cute line however most people try to ride out their karmic storms by barricading themselves inside psychological houses. No building, however weatherproof, can withstand every tornado, earthquake, flood, and conflagration. Almost everyone accordingly finds himself or herself exist- existentially homeless one day or another. And I, to me, this was a great you know succinctly putting what we do to ourselves uh in 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 relation to um uh, not surrendering to what is and and um and and not understanding all of the tendencies that we've developed just even in this lifetime never mind previous mm-hmm. lifetimes which is a whole other thing um so uh I, I wonder if you can't uh, address that, maybe in the way of some of the practices that you, you've yourself used and, and what uh, you might suggest to, st- to uh, students about the way that we do barricade ourselves uh, by uh, shying away from just being with the moment.
2: Well, I think it's, it relates a lot to what we've been talking about you know, um, I see it, I see it relating in two ways and we barricade ourselves first in the very notion of self, you know, that this there's someone, some substantial being inside who I am, and then we try to protect it or defend it or aggrandize it or satisfy it or gratify it. And it's all revolving around. This notion of I, of some being, and and that's the essential contraction. You know, instead of the zero center, we are living in the self center. Mm. You know, and that's our whole world revolves around this self center, uh, and it's it's kind of interesting, even in conventional language and understanding even though philosophically we might have a hard time understanding selflessness, you know, it's not, it's not, that's not an easy concept to um, really embody or or understand deeply, but on some level we all do intuitively know the problem, the problem of it. For example, just in the way we use language, we all know that, you know, when someone is self-centered, it's not a desirable quality. You know, it's if, if we have a friend who's very self-centered, we might, you know, think they uh, might benefit from some therapy, you know, to become a little less self-centered. But it has a much deeper meaning than just the, the ordinary understanding of it. It's whether there is a self at the center of, our way of being in the world. And that's the deepest kind of self-centeredness. And that is a limitation and a contraction, you know, and then we try to do everything, as I said, to protect it or defend it or satisfy it. So the freedom as, you know, from the passage you read, is freeing ourselves first from that concept or that notion or that, felt experience of a self at the center of everything and dropping more, even if it's just for moments at a time into the zero center where things are just arising out of causes and conditions, the karmic unfolding. So that's the first, the first aspect of greater freedom. And then the second is when we're in that process you know, and perhaps it's all unfolding um, more or less selflessly for a bit, uh, but then to see how that habit of leaning into the unfolding hmm. is coloring everything. So that's another kind of, um, we could say a contraction or another kind of unease. And that's where what we were talking about earlier, even if the moments of dropping back, there's nothing to want, because whatever we want will also just be passing away. So we drop back into the selfless not wanting (laughs) of everything. So it's not, you know, as as you were pointing out, it's not that it becomes this gray vacuity it's the fullness of life everything everything is there, Mm -hmm. but it's not revolving around the self Center and we're not caught in the wanting to become and so we really do get taste and. I want to repeat again this mentioned it many times now. it's powerful to even have moments of this not wanting we don't have to think of it as some far-off aspiration. It's just for a few moments can, you know, in our practice, in our life, can we drop back not wanting? And this is something else that I found really useful in my own meditation, to when I have those moments of not leaning in to becoming, but just back in the flow of experience, not wanting, then to actually investigate or look at what is the quality of the mind in that not wanting? You know, what is what is the nature of that not wanting mind? And we see very clearly, we can see very clearly that it's really a mind of great peace. But then it becomes experiential, not, not some philosophic description. We're actually experiencing the peace of not wanting and the stress of wanting. You know, So it becomes very real. And again, it might be just for a few short moments at a time. But it can be transformative.
1: Totally. And uh, this, to me, is, of course why we suggest to people to take some time in their in their lives take a week or two go to IMS in Barry and and uh, Joseph will take care of you although not <laughs> he stepped back a little bit but he has people who will take care of you all yes yes
2: <laughs> so there's one other there's one other little meditative exercise mm. uh, it's peripherally related Uh Well, which I found really helpful and maybe you know some people listening to the podcast uh, would like to experiment with it. What I found really interesting. Is just in the course of daily life, so this is not being on retreat it's not even particularly you know informal sitting just when i'm walking around. uh, I will often make a point of trying to notice the quickly passing thoughts in the mind you know the very light ones the ones that are not disturbing they're not big dramas they're just you know you're going for a walk and you might think of things you have to do or things in the past but so quickly passing light on one level not a problem what i found was that was very interesting to really start paying attention and becoming mindful even of those quickly passing light non-problematic thoughts. I learned a few really interesting things. One is that many of those thoughts, even though they were not super impactful because they were quickly passing Many of them contain some notion of self of I you know what we want to do what we some memories or some plans, so there was there was an I often embedded in the content of the thought. When we're not aware of those thoughts as being just thoughts. Even though they're not particularly disturbing in the moments that they're there and we're lost in them, we are reinforcing the sense of self. We're, we're creating and strengthening that notion. But it often goes unnoticed because those thoughts are not particularly disturbing. You know, so they don't, they don't necessarily call us to be mindful. And I was reminded, uh, do you know the experience sometime when you wake up in the morning you wake up and then maybe you drop back to sleep for a moment, too, and you have a you know a momentary dream, mm. and then you wake up again and then you're awake. Well, I realized that through the course of the day, with all of these quickly passing thoughts, it is exactly like falling back into that dream state for just those moments. Because in those moments, we're not aware that the thought is there, we're just in it, but it doesn't last long and it doesn't bother us too much, which is why we mostly ignore them. But what I realized by paying attention and keeping an eye out for them. To realize how many times in the course of a day. It's really quite pervasive, you know, these these light thoughts are happening countless times in a day and each time they're arising it's like we're dreaming ourselves into existence for those moments we're back in a dream state we're not aware either of the fact that we're thinking or where we actually are in that moment because we've we've been pulled into that thought world and so it's like being in the dream and the dream often revolves around some notion of self. And so that became a little mantra for me. Oh, I'm just dreaming myself into mm-hmm. existence. Mm. And it was a, it's a great reminder through the day uh, to keep an eye out for those. And it's, it's tremendously entertaining. <laughs> <laughs> I love to do it because mm. it, it so reveals how much of the time we all lost in a dream. That we're not really awake. to to the moment yeah Yeah. so it's I just I find it a very uh, engaging practice
1: and uh, just referring to some of the things we've been talking about around karma this is these kind of subtle mind states create our world here yes and uh, yeah exactly yeah yeah Now there was uh, our another friend. I think you quoted him. Uh, actually, I don't know him, but I know quite well who he is. And I think you're friendly with Norman Fisher, Zen teacher. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So uh, I think you. I believe this is his quote: "Make practice your whole life. The core heart is our intention. And our under- and understanding wisdom powers." Our formal meditation practice. So, there's a way in which people think that. Um, actually, I was just watching something on on YouTube, uh, Facebook, which was Das uh, is doing a European tour right now, and uh, and it was he had some kind of Q and A, and someone says, "Well, what do I do? You know, I've got my practice, and I'm." You know, doing whatever, and then I've got my family life, and I'm trying to take care. How do? What do I do? There's two things, and Krishna said, I didn't think they are two things, and I thought that was a great response. and And a lot of people have that issue around practice is one thing, but then living our day to day life is another thing. And I so if this came from Norman or you, whoever but make practice your whole life and, and cultivating uh, you know, that heart understanding that allows you to integrate and not think that they are in any way separate. Just talk about uh, cultivating practice yeah. as your, your no, life I as actually, practice.
3: Yeah, I actually just did a whole um, a six-week video course called Everything is Your Path. Oh, really? Yeah, and I really, I did that actually through Conscious too. You can still join it um, because we just started. Because this is so dear to my heart, you know, I had to find a way to make everything my path and to integrate practice with daily life. Because as I mentioned, I became a mom really young. Um, I wasn't off in ashrams and traveling through asia in monasteries practicing um monastic you know in that beautiful container of intensive practice and i had to carve out times and ways and i was even a single mom so i would have to trade with friends or once you know sometimes friends like john and myla zinn would take my daughter for a week so i could do an intensive zen retreat for a week um and what felt like a challenge and limitation in those days, I now see as a gift. And so I say this to those of you who have um, busy lives and aren't going to be able to go sit a three-month meditation course or retreat, take heart. Because in, in that very uh, crucible or pressure cooker of the intensity of trying to balance work and family and all the things that we do, our relationship, our marriage, whatever it is, um, that in the in the effort to balance those things and to be mindful of where we get out of balance, because things are constantly falling out of balance, and to be able to carve out the time to do nothing, so radical. And especially these days of, you know, constant connectivity and people, companies making the decision that every email must be responded to within 10 minutes. Um, this, you know, in against the backdrop of all of that, there's a bigger backdrop, which is a backdrop of perfect balance. And that we connect with in our time of being quiet each day, just feeling The harmonious activity of this body, the fact that the organs and systems are all working together to sustain our life and consciousness, Mm -hmm. being aware of what supports our life, the air we breathe, the sounds we hear, the um, earth that holds us up, um, gravity, (laughs) gravity. Mm -hmm. just to really understand the Dharma in these everyday terms and see its functioning all day long. This, I'm not sure it can be done without some periods of formal practice each day um, or at least each week uh, because I've never tried to do that. But uh, Mm -hmm. I think this question of are they two things or are they not is, is very profound because meditation... Prayer, kirtan, these times that we devote to our sadhana, to our spiritual practice, they are a slice of life. They're just a slice of life where we are um, not distracted by all the demands on us. It's a slice of life for self-care, but it's not different or separate from the rest of our life any more than, you know, eating a meal is different and separate from getting ready for bed. Uh, It's the same consciousness throughout all of these activities and beginning to step back into the awareness that knows that uh, is, you know, is our practice. Now, obviously, Raghu, I could go on and on. I'm very passionate about this question. Mm -hmm. So I'm glad you asked it.
1: Thank you. Yeah. No, it's important. It's important to everybody. And, and the awareness of the one who knows is, is what gets cultivated all, when you sit formally on a day-to-day basis. I mean, I'm all for telling people that that's a necessity, actually. Uh, uh, I think it's, you're saying it's twofold. You know, one is just it's part of life, and it just do nothing for five minutes. Start there. But I think to actually practice, and, and you know, I, I do recommend uh, Anapana Vipassana just focusing on, on the breath for a few minutes to, to just get a hold of this, uh, you know, crazy minds that we deal with on a day-to-day basis. So, yeah, I think, again, go see Trudy at Inside L.A., <laughs> you guys in L.A., or come do a retreat outside of L.A. And there's one um, one thing that rang my bell was around uh, one practice that you recommend that you do, and we should uh, investigate here. I think, yeah. uh, which is the mind the gap, which reminded yeah. me of yes. Trungpa Rinpoche, who yeah. did a very similar thing. So yeah, let's yeah. talk about it, because this this is now we got to get into. Okay. What are the antidotes to mini me?
0: That's right. There is
1: something to do, even though yeah. I also know there's absolutely nothing to do. I've seen that <laughs> with my own eyes. Yeah, uh, but uh, there is something to do. Those uh, those things go together.
0: Yeah. So um, yeah. So one of the practices uh, I call "Mind the Gap." And actually, if you want to put this on the the notes for people to look at, I have a four-minute uh, animated video. Oh. That I call um, <clears throat> that is exactly this practice uh, that's illustrated by an animator. Uh, it's called, um, I think, how to find peace of mind in four four minutes. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, basically, it's it's a classical practice from uh, Gampopa and a couple oh,
1: really?
0: of other <laughs> other um, where you look for the. You start with being aware of thoughts, which is kind of like a mindfulness of thoughts, feelings, sensations, Mm. and that's your first object. And then you become interested in, all right, so now I'm aware of thoughts are coming and going. So what's not coming and going? What is between the thoughts? Let's look into the space. Let's look into the gap and be just as interested in that. Um, And so... The practice that I do—that's in my book—but also, I think I'd love if people would take a look at this YouTube. It's on YouTube. Um, hmm. uh, finding peace under my name, Loch Kelly. You'll see it, and that's beautifully illustrated. I start with the uh, secular mantra, blah. Oh yeah. Blah. Okay. Why?
1: <laughs> Come on, Ram. <laughs> <laughs> Why go to blah? There is a thing with these uh, <laughs> Sanskrit words that has its own efficacy beyond our
0: minds' lock. Okay. Yeah. No. But but see, um, what I'm doing is getting see, the religious. If, go, if you go there through the, if you go there through the sound, you go with rum. But mm-hmm. if you go there through the gap, what you're doing is you're de-emphasizing thought as the method.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So you're saying, okay, you can go through sound or sacred syllable or mantra, but let's go through the door of space or the gap between chattering mind or Rather than focusing on thoughts feelings sensations uh, You just say blah, and then you're aware of the space.
1: Uh-huh.
0: So the goal is not blah <laughs> That's just, that's just occupying uh, your working mind It just occupies your mind first for, for Right. Uh, gives it something to chew on you're the the puppy minds sometimes i call it, rather than the monkey yeah. mind <laughs> right, 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 right. <laughs> and uh, then you'll so you'll find you'll find that the focus of awareness on spacious awareness uh, will become what i call awareness of awareness so vipassana starts with one point of focus and then four foundations of mindfulness which is uh, focusing on thoughts, feelings, sensations, and mind objects coming and going. And then effortless mindfulness, which is where uh, the Tibetan tradition goes next, is to become aware of space or awareness itself and look through back through the meditator to open up the field of intelligence that is what thoughts are made of. And that's the kind of radical thing that actually makes for this feeling of interconnectedness. Is that what I call the effortless mindfulness move? Awareness of awareness. Yeah.
1: I would love for you to just briefly say, to get to the point of having the courage to face internally and to allow yourself to be in a situation where you can encounter fear, etc., cetera, in, inside yourself. what What's the main practice that you have done in your life to engender this courage?
4: Raghu, I think it's not really just one practice. It's been a combination. And uh, one of those has been to develop attentional balance, to you know really be able to uh, bring at my attention into a place of uh, stability and uh, have it uh, be very grounded and inclusive. And that is one kind of mind training. Another is the cultivation of bodhicitta, the uh, cultivation of a loving heart. Of really seeing, you know, how much suffering there is in the world, and since I was little, I wanted to help. Yeah. You know, I wanted to end suffering. I wanted to serve, yeah. and to have that sensibility constantly arising. Like, is this really going to serve here? Mm. Will this end suffering? And then the other has to do with um, engaging in, uh, you know actions or living a life where, you know, I'm in the charnel ground a lot, not, you know, I haven't uh, uh, sat down with the Trump voter yet. That's on my bucket list. <laughs> but, you know, it's, I'm working really poor parts of this country and of the world of working with dying people, of working with homeless people, of working in the prison system, of running these medical clinics in Nepal, um, you know, of putting myself uh, in the way of harm, and allowing harm to um, really leaven my character.
5: Uh-huh.
1: I have been doing some podcasts since the beginning of this year when the new administration ha- came into effect with many, Jack, many of our um, our friends that are part of the Be Here Now Network. And, of course, your, your, your really close friends, Sharon and Joseph in, in included. Um, and uh, I, so this is my opportunity to just get from you in, in a personal way what you were going through when this the reality of what has happened happened the election and then since then some of the very, very tough news that we get on a day to day basis. And uh, and much of what I'm was been relating with people has been about the anxiety of course, the the chaotic nature of, of these day to day reports the uh, fear people are going through a lot of very very tough stuff and none the least of course the polarization that we feel and 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 in this book that you do address that and, uh, and I have some some stuff that I'll prompt you about but can you just tell me you know in terms of your own personal how did you and how did you encounter this stuff these emotions the, the reality the the of the situation where, you know, many, many, many people are being affected.
6: So, Raghu, um, of course I was affected, um, but I need to say first that I don't make any assumption about those who, listening, having a particular political affiliation or a particular point of view. Some may have voted for Hillary, some for Bernie, some for uh, Trump, those Americans who are listening, some might be outside the country. So one thing that feels very important is not to make prior assumptions about what's good or bad or where it all leads in the the bigger game, um, and certainly not to kind of pigeonhole a group of people. Um, so that's the first piece. Um, as much as anything, and everyone said it, It demands a time of listening. That being said, um, uh, yes, I experienced uh, fear myself and anxiety, um, mostly a deep, deep concern for vulnerable people. Um, And there is in uh, the Buddhist teachings on why society says that a society that meets together in harmony and respects each of the members and departs in harmony can be expected to prosper and not decline, where there's a mutual respect. And a society which cares for the vulnerable among us, um, the women, the children and others, um, can be expected to prosper and not decline. And a society in which um, the environment and the natural world is cared for can be expected to prosper and not decline. And I was able to talk about these things at the first White House Buddhist gathering, which was a year and a half ago or so. I doubt I'll be invited back in this administration, but you never know. Um, And uh, said that not only are these eternal truths, but that there are ways to train and practice these. There are ways to train ourselves in compassion and empathy, ways to train ourselves in mutual respect with mindfulness and care, there are ways to train ourselves in emotional regulation so that we can be with one another without fueling conflict. Um, and those are the underlying principles. And so my fear that came was that we're headed in a direction that would harm the vulnerable, um, whether it's immigrants or the environment or people of color or those who are poor, all those that we can name as um, a vulnerable in the society. Um, and, of course... Over these months in teaching, I've had thousands of people come and many express the anxiety. There are some some things that are really important to understand. Um, The first is that we don't want to take the anxiety of the culture and the terror and the fear that the political world is fomenting um, into our hearts. And um, part of the way politics works, not just now, but for centuries, H.L. Mencken, a hundred years ago, great commentator, said <clears throat> that most of the work of politics is to scare the populace in all kinds of ways so that they will vote for you. Um, but the kind of messages of fear and terror that are out there on all sides um, easily can kind of colonize our nervous system and take over our heart so the first thing is um, not to listen to too much news you know to titrate it seriously because um, yes you want to pay attention and it's very important but it's easy to get um, overrun and overwhelmed. Uh, the second is to remember what Thich Han said that when the crowded Vietnamese refugee boats met with storms or pirates if everyone panicked all would be lost but if even one person on the boat remained centered and calm it was enough it showed the way for everyone to survive and so we can become that person on the boat in the stormy seas or with the pirates now to do this internally um, it can help to find a meditative safe place or a, a meditative resource in yourself or a contemplative resource To sit quietly, first take some breaths and acknowledge or bow to the anxiety or fear that's present. You can't just push it away because that's just fear of the fear. You acknowledge it and it's trying to protect you. You can say, thank you, I'm okay for now, thank you. This is fear, this is anxiety. And then as you breathe a little bit, having mindfully acknowledged it, find the place in your body that feels safest, connected to the earth, your buttocks in the chair, your feet in the floor. Or remember a time when you felt the most safety in your life, which might be with your grandmother when you were young or, you know, in the, you know, company of somebody that you really respected and cared for beautiful circumstance or safe place that you've been and let that fill your body. And remember that there is trust in humanity and trust in safety that you can carry. Um, that we've survived generations of struggles and wars and racism and all the things that create human suffering have been one current. But another current is human dignity and human survival, which can't be taken from you. And feel the safety and the confidence. And from that place you can observe or witness with loving awareness, um, you know, the political situation, the resonance in your body, the anxiety and so forth, but not take it so so seriously. Or you can take the anxiety and the fear and inwardly make an altar and put on the altar Mother Mary or Solomon or Jesus or Kuan Yin or Buddha or whoever it is and say, all right, you hold this for now. You hold this, the concern and fear that I have and hold the care for the environment and all the human beings And let me find a place of peace. And you carry this so that when those thoughts come, you can acknowledge them and say, all right, these are being held by Mother Mary. These are being held by Kuan Yin or Buddha. Um, And it allows your body to relax and come back to a, a place of center. And then you can sense, I can plant seeds. And, you know, you stretch out your arm and mend the part of the world that you can touch or you go into the garden of life. In Zen, they say there are only two things. You sit and you sweep the garden, and it doesn't matter how big the garden is. That is, you quiet the mind and tend the heart, and then you get up and you sweep the garden of the world. So you sweep or you plant your seeds or you mend whatever metaphor you like. You offer your peace, um, but you do it from a place of a quieter mind and a heart that has been uh, protected and Tended in some way mm-hmm. and there are ways to tend to ourselves and tend to the earth and the things that we care about um, where we wh- Whip it up and we get into conflict with one another and we're afraid all the time and you know we or there are ways to stand up for what's right um, to care deeply um, but to do it from a place of greater presence and and um, spacious heart and um, and that we become the vessel of peace in some way. When I was walking one morning with Ajahn Chah, my teacher, out on alms round, um, we went by a field and there was a giant boulder in the middle of the field. And he said, is that boulder heavy? And we said, oh yes. And he said, smiling, not if you don't pick it up. <laughs> you know. And there was something in the pith of that teaching mm. that it, it's healthy for us to see what we should be picking up and what we should allow to be the way that it is so that we can till the field or plant or whatever, but not necessarily carry the suffering mm. in an unhealthy way. Mm. Yeah.
1: Talk a little bit about the practical side of of dealing with disturbing, troubled emotions, and uh, obviously uh, what we were talking about before and your comments around spaciousness and awareness, loving awareness uh, go right to the point, but maybe just uh, you know a little bit more around the practicalities that people can engage with to uh, resolve.
6: So, there are a number of things that are important. Um, the first is to recognize that they're there and to acknowledge, almost again, with loving awareness, with a bow, oh, this is trauma, this is anger, this is pain, this is grief. um this is frustration. You know, this is overwhelm and anxiety. Um, so first is, to acknowledge them and sometimes it's helpful even to name them in this very simple way, anxious, fearful, um, angry, angry. The minute you name them, it's like you have the name of the dragon and it starts to give you a little power over it. And then you give some space to it. And you say, oh, this is like weather it comes and it's powerful, but the loving awareness becomes the witness of it. However, if it's very powerful um, and it's connected to some deep trauma um, you can get overwhelmed or re-traumatized so as you approach the big difficult emotions and traumas part of what you want to do is to first get a stable ground a sense of again connection in your body with the earth or remembering as I said some place of safety or some relationship with your grandmother or grandfather or, or a teacher or loved one or someone where you feel like this is well-being and I have this resource in me in this beautiful way. And then from the sense of well-being, um, you approach the, the really difficult emotion just a little bit and you feel what it's like in your body. And you try to soften around it and let it have its say, let it release a little, because it's all bottled up in there, but only a little bit. And then you go back to that place of well-being so you don't drown in it, so you don't get lost in it. And there's a kind of pendulation back and forth a little bit at a time when it's very powerful. Um, Or you bring in the quality of compassion and you let yourself feel in your heart, how many people have been overwhelmed by this same emotion, by anger or fear or self-doubt or judgment or confusion. This very day, how many human beings are wrestling with this? And you begin to hold it with some tenderness and say, it's not personal. This is part of the human dance, human condition. And then with it, with that tenderness, and then going back to the place of a powerful stability, you say, all right, let me feel a little bit of it at a time. Let it tell a little of its story. Now let me digest it and quiet myself and see if I can be steady and let a little more in. So those are a few hints. Mm,
1: yeah, great. First question, and this is a question that uh, Terry. This is from Terry. And Terry, um, I can relate with uh, this question quite a bit. I have always had a very reactive temper and destructive anger problem, which has at times resulted in outbursts and behavior I wish I could undo, like me wanting to yell at my dogs right now for barking. (laughs) I've reached the point where I clearly see the root of this anger and desire to control is based on deeply rooted fear and insecurity. Could you address techniques for dealing with this fear? Suppression obviously doesn't work. That is, it just comes out in totally inappropriate ways. How can I sit with or examine this anger and underlying fear without getting sucked into it and feeding it?
5: Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a great question. I think, I mean, in some ways, the gap that we're looking for Um is between what we're feeling and how we're behaving because we feel what we feel. And uh, in any introspective process, we unearth a great deal of feeling usually and of all kinds. And so learning how to be with it more skillfully, which is the heart of this question is the point, not making it go away, you know, or, or wishing it could never come back or feeling like we failed. Because if we could have something like a, a wave of rage, you know, come through us like the weather, and not send that email, you know, or not lash out, or at least give it some time, uh, then that's a hugely successful outcome. Um, Years ago, I read an article in the New York Times about one of the early, early pilot programs bringing mindfulness into the classroom. Now there's so many more, but this was pretty unusual then. And this was a fourth grade classroom in Oakland. And and so it's like a nine or 10 year old kid, right? So the journalist asked him, what is mindfulness? And he said, mindfulness means not hitting someone in the mouth. That's what mindfulness means. And I thought that is a great (laughs) answer. You know, it's a great, great answer. Because what does it imply? It implies knowing we're feeling angry when we start to feel angry not after it's escalated, not after we've sent the email, not after we've lashed out, right? But as it's beginning. So we learn how to be that much in touch with our bodies, with, you know, with unspoken emotion. And it also implies a certain balanced relationship with the anger. Cause if we fall into every feeling, if we get uncentered all the time, uh, if we get overwhelmed all the time, we'll hit a lot of people in the mouth because life could be very frustrating. But at the same time, you know, this is part of the question. If we hate what we're feeling and we're afraid of it and we try to repress it, that doesn't work either. We just get tighter and tighter and tighter and then we explode. So to be able to hang in there and say, this is anger. What does anger feel like? actually take some interest in it, uh, is revolutionary. And that's what we practice every time we're sitting and the anger comes up and then we lose it, but we have to begin again. Uh, and over time, you really do build that kind of confidence, that ability, not just to do it on the cushion, you know, but but to do it in life. Yeah.
1: You know, and you talk about, there's one thing you're talking about, uh, I want to add here, uh, which is, uh, you've named the add-on, you know, and you tell that great story, I think it was with Joseph. Joseph, yeah. I tell, but um, I do find that uh, when I get triggered in, into um, an anger, uh, I f- I. Well, and, and I have enough mindfulness to see it arising and see it reach out. And, you know, and I, through practice, uh, it, mm-hmm. I have enough spaciousness around it so that I'm not acting. Uh, but I do see, the interesting part is how I see whatever triggered this anger just as a trigger. What comes up is so much of the past yeah. frustrations yeah. or anger in one's life uh that f- it's like a flash fire
5: mm-hmm.
1: if, you know so if you don't catch it right away it it is consuming so yeah, to talk about the add-on because that's what's happening in
5: that yeah moment. well the story around joseph was a cute story i was teaching with my friend my colleague joseph Goldstein, somewhere and joseph and i were sitting in the kitchen having a cup of tea and this guy came in and said to joseph i just had this really terrible experience so joseph said well what happened and he said, I felt all of this tension in my jaw, and I realized what an incredibly uptight person I am and how I always have been and I always will be. And Joseph said, you mean you felt a lot of tension in your jaw? And he said, yes, and I've never been able to get close to people. It's never going to change. And Joseph said, you mean you felt a lot of tension in your jaw? And I was kind of watching him go back and forth and back and forth. And <laughs> finally, Joseph said something like, why are you adding a miserable self-image to a painful experience? It's like, genuinely painful to feel all that tension in your jaw but now you're going to be alone for the rest of your life right so um we look for the add-ons that's one of the ways we define mindfulness it's like we look for the add-ons and see if we can relinquish the add-ons and just be with our direct experience and that gives us room to explore like anger is really interesting because it tends to be a very complex feeling like if you're not freaking out about it and you're not plotting revenge you know but you're sitting there almost like saying, what is anger? What does anger feel like? You see, and you watch the anger movie, you know, often you will see fear and you'll see sadness. And um, in Tibetan Buddhism, they say anger is what we pick up when we feel weak because we think it's going to make us strong. So you almost always see a kind of helplessness in there. It's like, you don't know what to do. So, you know, um, so the positive part of the anger is the energy, but the, the damaging parts are very strong. So, that's another thing we do. Instead of calling it bad or wrong or terrible, as you look at your own anger, reframe that and call it a state of suffering. Like mm. this is a painful state, and, and that will change things as well.
1: Great.